I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We need to be, uh, need to be very cautious about, again, that, that sort of fear of entrapment that I, that I mentioned. It's one thing to be abandoned. It's another thing to be entrapped. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, Professor the Honourable Gareth Evans joins Professor Rory Medcalf in conversation. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Welcome back to the National Security Podcast. And in this episode, it's my real pleasure to Welcome to the studio, Gareth Evans. Uh, Professor Gareth Evans, who not only uh, is a very good friend of the National Security College, uh, formerly Chancellor of this university, but also, of course, uh, such a a vital figure and voice in uh, Australian foreign policy over many years, in Australia's uh, contribution to the international community and still a, um, a, a very influential voice in, in public policy debate in this country. Gareth, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the uh, National Security Podcast. My pleasure, Laurie. So I thought that we'd have a conversation today about a pretty big theme. Uh, you, you've had a, an off-the-record engagement earlier today with a number of my colleagues at the National Security College where our topic was essentially positioning Australia in the new geopolitics or for the new geopolitics. And so I hope we can have a conversation on similar themes today on on the podcast. And I want to begin really by, uh, I guess, asking you what you see as the major issues or the major challenges, the major themes for Australian uh, foreign and external policy in the years ahead, in this this decade of the 2020s. Well, I think there are five big challenges that stand out. One is resetting our relationship and managing our relationship with China. Secondly, it's navigating our relationship with the United States, the other party to the great regional and global geostrategic competition that we're now witnessing. The third challenge, I think, in that context and more generally is to strengthen our relationship with our other Asia and Pacific neighbours. The fourth challenge I would describe as... Restoring our credibility as a good international citizen, a decent country committed to a whole bunch of decency objectives which don't fit squarely within the security and economic national interest baskets. And I think a fifth challenge is to restore diplomacy to centre stage in the conduct and formulation of Australian foreign policy because for too many years, frankly, it's been a prisoner of the defence and security establishment and foreign affairs has been very much marginalised as a group of highly competent professionals. And I think that needs to be reversed. That's a pretty uh, powerful list there. And I think there's there's a fascinating um, consonance with some of the uh, the priorities you're pursuing as, as foreign minister of this country in, in the 1990s. So I might just 
wind back a moment and ask you about the similarities and differences, because there are some pretty profound differences too between then and now. Well, the geopolitical environment overall was obviously very different. Back then, um, you know, China had not yet risen. Uh, the Cold War was over. The United States had not yet uh, visibly declined in its influence and credibility, uh, at least comparatively. Um, the big existential issues were only really nuclear weapons. Climate and pandemics were not on anybody's radar uh, that mattered. And it was generally an environment, however, in which the United Nations was bursting back into centre-front prominence the opportunity to do creative things in cooperative security and building consensus and building coalitions around major change were just uh, leaping out at you. And Australia was really able to take advantage of that, positioning ourselves as we very self-consciously did as a creative, energetic middle power, not with the economic or military clout to force anyone to do anything, but with a capacity as such to be persuasive, having sufficient internal uh, capacity to to be able to formulate complex policy and to advocate it and, and deliver it. And as such, we were able to play a pretty significant role on global issues like the Antarctic Treaty, on the on the bringing to fruition of the Chemical Weapons uh, Convention, on the the, uh, the campaign against um, apartheid in South Africa with using particularly the mechanism of financial sanctions, which we advocated, um, initiating the Canberra Commission on the Elimination of Nuclear Weapons, which did start some fundamental new thinking about the salience of nuclear weapons in the contemporary, you know, post-Cold War age, plus a whole bunch of regional things that we were able to uh, to play a prominent role in the creation, uh, helping at the creation of the new regional economic and security dialogue forums, APEC and the ASEAN Regional Forum in particular, uh, the role that we played in um, initiating the Cambodia peace settlement that finally came together made such a difference, and just generally the uh, you know, the, the role that we had as a as a sort of reasonably credible player in the uh, the wider Asia Pacific or what we now call the Indo Pacific region and the South Pacific. So it was an environment in which anything seemed possible. As I wrote in my memoir, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive and to be foreign minister was the very heaven. Because, you know, you really had a sense that if you were active and engaged and thoughtful and professional, you could really make a difference. Now it's much more difficult. I mean, I think we have to accept and acknowledge that reality. The, um, the geostrategic competition between the United States and China is there for all to see um, and with the potential for it to end in tears if there's not very, very careful management and discipline and self-discipline on both sides. You've got um, Russia challenging the whole um, post-World War II global international order through its indefensible assault on Ukraine. You've got the revitalization and emergence of India as a major player, which has changed the regional dynamics um, for us and to the point that we're now all talking about, as, as you have been prominent in advocating, the, the idea of the Indo-Pacific rather than just the, the Asia-Pacific, the East Asian prominence. Um, we've got an environment in which um, multilateralism generally is is struggling to make an impact. The um, UN Security Council has been reduced almost to impotence, obviously, in the context of the uh, the great power struggle that's that's going on. Uh, international bodies, advisory bodies, dialogue bodies have lost a lot of their salience. ASEAN seems to have lost a lot of its capacity, if it ever had it, to exercise real internal uh, discipline over 
states that are misbehaving on the scale that Myanmar now is, ASEAN losing its coherence a little in the context of capacity to willingness to push back against China to the extent that China is overreaching in Southeast Asian space. You've got a whole bunch of dynamics um, out there that are making it extremely difficult for good, sound, sensible foreign policy to prevail. And there's an urgent need to restore that sort of commitment to cooperative security, to addressing the big existential risk issues that we are now so acutely conscious of. And um, you know, doing it in a way that makes the world um, rather safer and saner and less dangerous than it appears to all of us to be at the moment. It is a world where I think, sad to say, power is playing such a um, such a central role. I I think the way you've described uh, the early to mid nineteen nineties. I remember it. Uh, I think it's the time when I joined the um, the Foreign Service, joined DFAT. In fact, my first role was uh, serving the uh, Secretariat of the Canberra Commission. So. I should say thanks for that, Gareth. But at the same time, you know, we do face a much bleaker strategic environment, in, in my view. And so I guess where I'd push you uh, a bit is on this, this middle power activism that, uh, that you are advocating for Australia, carrying on or renewing a tradition uh, that you played such a key role in building. What scope do we actually have to make impact in this, in this new environment? Well, there's so many issues that cry out for global cooperation and the bringing to bear of a sort of a principled position. Um, you know, obviously the big existential risk issues of climate and pandemics, uh, places not just for the big elephants to contest, but they demand a cooperative approach from the whole active international community and middle powers have demonstrated over and over again that they can play an energising role in this respect. I mean, even very small powers like the, some of the Pacific Island nations, the Marshall Islands, have, have shown uh, you know what influence active and creative diplomacy can, can make even on a micro level when it comes to the, the climate issue. So I think there is the scope um, for doing that, but it, it, needs, um, it needs sustained, credible commitment. The, uh, there's no easy, no easy victories out there on anything, on any of the, whether security issues or economic issues, um, or the, what I call the decency issues, the good international citizenship issues. I mean, you know, treatment of refugees and, um, and population flows with the huge numbers, tens of millions of displaced people. Uh, this really does require, you know, a cooperative mindset to solve these problems. Once you once you get locked into a competitive zero sum game mindset, these problems do really, really do remain intractable. But I see initiatives taking place, you know, every everywhere you sort of look. I mean, there's a, there's an initiative, for example, by two very prominent middle powers, as we describe them, the Netherlands and Canada, right now. Uh, to establish an international anti-corruption court to try to address head-on uh, the problem of, of gothic-scale kleptocracy by um, you know, political leaders who are bleeding their country and others dry by the scale of their default and um, existing mechanisms not proving very capable of doing that. So, um, you know, there's the, the agenda of issues crying out for attention is almost endless, but I think the, the capacity of countries – you know, like Australia, a lot of the Europeans, the Scandinavians, the Canadians, who've had a long record, sometimes a mixed record, but a long record of 
of engaged activism on these issues. I'm, I really am enough of a, an incorrigible optimist, um, as I rather ridiculously called my memoir a few years ago. I'm enough of an incorrigible optimist to believe that if you've got that kind of commitment and you put your shoulder to the wheel with, uh, with active principled diplomacy, you can make a difference. Let's go through your five um, priorities for Australia uh, in, in the years ahead. And, you know, I think as with any external policy agenda, there are tensions and dissonances within those, and that's where a lot of the really hard diplomatic work lies. But it would just be useful to hear, I think, I guess in a bit more depth, what you see as the challenge and the opportunity uh, for Australia's interests, for, uh, you know, the kinds of values we espouse. Let's begin with the China-Australia relationship, if I, if I may, Gareth, and then move on to the United States. Well, the task for us with China has always been, since China started to be as assertive as it now is and be as prickly as it now is, the task has always been, A, to stand up to China and resist some of the more indefensible things that it's been doing or trying to do, but at the same time, get along with China, get along with China as we must because of the scale of our economic entanglement, by far our biggest trading partner, and um, a country that really is here to stay as the biggest and strongest um, player on the regional block and right up there alongside the United States on the, on the global block. So there's a Scottish Union figure, uh, Jimmy Maxton, famously said back in the, the 1930s, if you can't ride two bloody horses at once, you shouldn't be in the bloody circus. So I think that's our task. That's the diplomatic task, to both stand up to and to get along with. And the problem with Australian diplomacy in recent years is that we've been doing all the, the stand-up stuff, but we've completely forgotten the obligation to get along with. And some of our our rhetoric has been uh, you know, strident, over-the-top, counterproductive. Some of the... Um, Things we've done, I think, with our anti-dumping policy um, really ought to put us on the defensive rather than something to be proud of and does give us leverage now to find some common ground in, in persuading the Chinese to, to step back from some of the more extreme positions that they've been taking. Now, with the new Australian government, I think they get it about the need to, to walk this particular tightrope and I think the... Uh, you know, the evidence of recent weeks is with the resumption of high-level dialogue between the two countries that um, we can find a way of, of getting back to some kind of greater normality in our relationship without um, without sacrificing any really fundamental either economic or security interests in the process. I think it's been handled extremely well by uh, Penny Wong, the foreign minister, um, so far as with everything else she's frankly done in the region. Um, and um, I think Prime Minister Albanese, for whom foreign policy is not a, a natural role, um, has been sort of very much finding his feet and has struck the right note in his opening um, relationships with the uh, with the Chinese. I think with Xi Jinping now having the his guaranteed tenure for the foreseeable future behind him, maybe he's not quite as disposed to, to beat the heavy-duty nationalist drum that uh, he has been uh, for the last year or two or, or more. So I think the conditions are there for some greater degree of uh, normalisation in the relationship. But, uh, there's, but there are plenty of issues on which we, we, you know, we can't avoid contesting and, and pushing back. And um, I've not resisted, um, for example, um, at all the notion of Australia's engagement in the Quad as a, as a way of demonstrating to China that um, – short though it may be of a formal military alliance, there is a group of countries that are between them pretty militarily capable that uh, will be perfectly uh, willing and able to push back 
um, in any way that becomes necessary if, if things really do turn pear-shaped. And I think that's a very useful message to be sending in the present environment. So it's a complex complex road to walk. Um, and you've got to walk both sides of the road. And to, to walk one side of it only is to get into the kind of uh, no-win situation that we've been in now for all too many years. I think the word that certainly I would use in describing where we need to go is stabilisation. I think you know, others use the term reset, which I think is uh, a bit more problematic for me. But if you're looking at the Australia-China relationship now, the point you make is that the Australian government hasn't effectively walked back on any of the um, national interest, national security positions that were adopted over recent years. Uh, foreign interference laws will remain in place. Security, um, uh, a very clear security criterion to foreign investment decisions and so forth. But the rhetoric is more disciplined. There's that pursuit of a kind of a, a starting point of mutual Respect. Uh, I, I maybe given that we're recording this on the twenty eighth of November, uh, and I'm noting a few interesting developments in the news. It might be worth just also any any thoughts you have on what we're currently seeing, whether it's the um, uh, the election results in Taiwan over the weekend, or the fact that there is uh, you know quite a strong now uh, protest in China against COVID uh, the COVID zero policy. Uh, I mean, how predictable is the future of China and the future of China-Taiwan relations going to be and how, how will that affect Australia's calculations? Well, there's a number of things should be giving China pause uh, before it gets as adventurous as some people are claiming that it currently wants to be. I mean, the uh, the failure of the Russians to have a quick, clean enterprise in indefensible operation in Ukraine is, is one source of concentration. Um, the fact that... Um, Chinese public opinion is making itself heard, albeit in a completely different context of COVID rather than anything to do with national pride or national security as externally, um, is, you know, it's just, it's a straw in the wind that, that can't be ignored and I'm sure won't be ignored by the Chinese leadership. And the fact that, um, you know, Taiwan itself is, um, obviously not going to do anything, uh, in the foreseeable future, to uh, to provoke um, China into, into prodding prodding the bear um, with the KMT, you know, sort of re-emerging in these uh, very significant local elections just in the last few days, all of these, um, you know, that not not that I think there was much prospect of even under the previous, um, well, under the current presidency of uh, Taiwan, I don't think there was any real prospect of that kind of provocation, and at, at, at worst, uh, the prospect of a of a kinetic contest over Taiwan is is, is quite some years away, um, and both sides are going to be both China and the others, Taiwan and those who are supporting it, um, they're going to be very, very risk averse, I think, for the foreseeable future. So I don't think we need to be as nervous as some people have been getting about this. But that, of course, doesn't mean that you uh, you can avoid tending to your defence needs, because as always with defence, the issue is other sides, other potential adversaries' capability, not their not their assumed current or future intent. And uh, in that context, um, we all have to be on our guard that um, the things may in fact uh, you know, prove less benign in the, in the not-too-distant future. I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic that... Um, any catastrophic misjudgments and any catastrophic plunge into deadly conflict. I'm reasonably optimistic that that can be avoided, but you can't be completely optimistic. There's, there's too much world experience we all now have to uh, to be that. 
We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Look, that is a good point for us to pivot the conversation to talking about the United States as the second of your five uh, your five points of focus for the Australian government. And of course, we could talk about the future of the United States uh, itself, or we could talk about the role of the United States in our region, the role of the United States as an ally, the need for some kind of management of the strategic competition between the US and China. How do you see the United States as a priority for Australian policy? Well, I think we all have to be pretty careful about the United States for a number of reasons. One is that whoever's in present government or likely future government, there's no sign whatsoever of any kind of public accommodation in the US to the reality of uh, of China's full-scale rise to, if not primacy itself, at least sort of equivalent status, a, a G2 world. That's the reality. I often, um, I often quote um, a line that I heard from Bill Clinton two years after he left the presidency, which was in a private meeting, and I've never heard him say anything publicly as remotely as acute, but it captures, I think, what's gone wrong with the United States thinking on this issue. Clinton said then, and I vividly remember it, US has got two choices about the way in which we use this great and unrivaled, we're talking about 2002, so it was then unrivaled, economic and military power that we have. Choice number one, he said, was to use that power to try to stay top dog on the global block in perpetuity. Choice number two is to create a world in which we will be comfortable living when we are no longer top dog on the global block. I thought then, and I still think now, that was a pitch-perfect analysis of the kind of role that the United States should be seeking for itself when its primacy moment in practice was was over. And it is over. Um, already economically, um, China's bigger in purchasing power parity terms and not too far distant will be in exchange rate terms. Economically, militarily, China's nothing like as competent as the United States, but but fast modernizing its capacity. And in terms of you know China's aspirations to be a global rule taker as well as sorry a rule maker as well as just rule taker, its aspirations to command its own you know strategic space in uh, in East Asia. I mean, China's already a formidable power, and we have to accommodate ourselves to that reality. And so long as the Americans still insist on talking the P words, primacy, predominance, preeminence, then that's going to be very counterproductive to achieving the kind of cooperative, collaborative, 
you know, approach that I think is absolutely crucial for the maintenance of long-term peace and stability in the region and, and globally. The uh, all of us have in the in the region, um, obviously Australia, but a lot of the other partners in uh, in East Asia have have had a, a fear of abandonment. Uh, Alan Gingell has written, of course, about this a whole a book about it, as a motif of Australian foreign policy for decades. We had a fear of abandonment, and that's. That's a contemporary manifestations of that of the, of the Quad and um, and AUKUS, the, uh, the defence arrangement. We'll no doubt talk about um, you know trying to trying to hitch ourselves to that American wagon and uh, really rely on the U.S. alliance to do the heavy lifting for us when we um, when we uh, get into strife or the possibility that we'll get into strife. But what what I think you know given the the vagaries, not only of the US general unwillingness, whoever's in power to accept uh, the reality of the contemporary geopolitical environment, but given also the extraordinary vagaries now of US domestic politics and the incapacity any of us have to be really confident that um, there's going to be any kind of stability or longer-term sanity um, in the conduct of American policy and the revival of Trump or or someone like DeSantis, who um, you know seems to be a, a much smarter and therefore more dangerous version of Trump, um, that, that that reality is is all too present. So in that context, the fear of abandonment, um, I think, is is gradually turning into more and more in the region into into what's been described as a fear of entrapment, the fear that if we put too many eggs in the American basket, we're going to be sucked into a war not of our own making, not of our own choosing. That'll be very, 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 very devastating if we get caught up in it. So, riding, you know, managing this particular environment, um, navigating our relationship with the United States in this environment of great strategic uncertainty, great strategic fragility, significant strategic risk, but also significant concern about just where the United States will be. Um, and, you know, whose interests other than its own it will ever be prepared to sacrifice blood and treasure for anyway. Uh, all of these things really should make us be thinking a lot more a lot more clearly and a lot more uh, perhaps um, quizzically about our relationships with the United States than, uh, than we in Australia have been. Can I untangle that a little bit? Because I think we, uh, you know, I, I think we can have these concerns and, and scepticism about the trajectory of the United States. Uh, you know, the, the midterm uh, elections were, I guess, heartening at one level because it wasn't the, uh, the outcome that, uh, that many had feared. And, you know, in some ways, I've actually uh, been quite struck by the seriousness of the Biden administration's engagement with the Indo-Pacific, but we can hold those concerns and we can talk about the some of the dark futures, um, potential plausible dark futures for the United States. But imagining Australia's security without the US alliance is still an enormous step. And I think uh, there would be such a change in public mindset to need to accommodate that possibility, such a change in our own defence expenditure, uh, our own security posture. Uh, what exactly are you are you looking to here? You're not. You're surely not saying oh, no, let's, I'd, let's I'd, drop the alliance. No, I've never. I've never argued that we walk away from the alliance. It's obviously been of huge significance in terms of logistics and intelligence support and materiel and all the rest of it of a high degree of technological sophistication and more hopefully to come in the future. Obviously, that's been important, and obviously, the you know the the presence of. 
America as a notional defender of Australia from should we ever get into serious strife with any other country, we can be a little bit sceptical about whether in practice that, that commitment would in fact uh, be real and whether American self-interest um, would extend to protecting Australia if its own interests were not also simultaneously being threatened. Nonetheless, obviously, that's a relationship worth having. But uh, there are you know, significant limits to the degree of confidence we can have, as I've just been describing, and that does have implications for the kind of way in which we've got to you know, prepare ourselves for the risky environment in which we're, we're now in. I actually think the prospect of us being caught up in any existential conflict with a country like China that is capable of really really uh, tearing us apart. And that's rather less likely if we're distanced from America than if we're enmeshed in the American embrace. So there's a, there's an element of, uh, of contradiction, I suppose, involved there. But on the assumption that any country has to prepare itself for potential conflict, if other countries, potential adversaries in the region have that capability uh, to wreak serious havoc, whether or not there's any skerrick of such intention visible now or likely in the future, you've got to prepare on the basic capability, not intent. And what does that mean? It means, I think, that Australia does have to um, very, very seriously um, up the ante in terms of what we're spending on defence and how we're spending the money. I mean, the, the money has to be very sensibly spent and spending it on a, a legion of tanks careering across northern Australia doesn't seem to make very much sense to spend it on a lot of surface ships, doesn't seem to make very much sense given their increasingly obvious vulnerability to missile strikes um, in any future. Spending it on submarines um, certainly makes sense. We can come back to the argument about what kind of submarines. Spending it on missile systems, defensive systems, long-range aircraft capability, all of that makes a lot of sense, and um, clearly we've just we've just got to do that. And um, if we're going to be serious about um, defence self reliance or maximum possible self reliance, um, then we've we've got to you know, be prepared to make some domestic sacrifices uh, accordingly. Whether Australia is ever going to be capable, given the size of our continent and the scale of our population and so on, to defend ourselves against a, an absolutely full-scale existential risk absent uh, United States alliance support um, is a very, very big question. And, um, you know, you're entitled to be sceptical about that. But there's a lot of other contingencies short of that which can conceivably arise. And uh, being visibly capable of making a pretty significant impact on any potential adversary that might get nasty with us is um, is a pretty significant disincentive. And uh, I think we we uh, we just need to recognise that and work for the maximum possible um, self-reliance and the minimum possible enmeshment with the United States, um, even while um, you know still keeping as much as we can of that alliance relationship. So you've mentioned AUKUS, and we'll come back to that uh, in a moment because I think it is really important to understand the uh, the implications and the choices that that uh, huge strategic initiative involves. Uh, I, I would note that. In thinking about Australian defence, of course, we have a defence uh, strategic defence strategic review uh, that's due to be uh, released early next year. We have the so-called capability pathway for AUKUS, uh, where there'll be clarity, we hope, about what uh, a future Australian uh, nuclear-powered submarine program will look like, including the the content of uh, American and/or British um, technology. But I would note on the 
the question of conflict uh, and strategic crisis. We've all watched with horror, as you say, uh, Russia's uh, uh, illegal and um, unprovoked invasion of, of Ukraine this year. We've looked at countries recognising that war is a reality of the 21st century, uh, whether we like it or not. And interestingly, even countries like uh, Finland and Sweden that have traditionally prided themselves on a more neutral position and a more self-reliant uh, defence capability are thinking, not just thinking, but acting now to join an alliance arrangement. So, you know, these are very, very live debates, Gareth. Can we go to AUKUS and get your view on uh, the significance of that decision, perhaps the clarity or otherwise about what it means and how that fits into the um, your, your concerns for the future of the alliance. I'm more troubled now about AUKUS than I was at the time of the original announcement. Um, I'm not stressed about the nuclear proliferation dimension of this. I it's think that's been wildly that. exaggerated. Yeah. And uh, even though I'm a passionate opponent of nuclear weapons, I don't think there is any significance uh, in the, the you know the risk of this resulting in a you know proliferation cascade somewhere. Uh, I mean that's all been overblown. And can I just interrupt you there to note that um, uh, you know you and I are strong advocates of Australia having a very strong non-proliferation and disarmament expertise within within our bureaucracy and our foreign service. I get the impression that is now being revived and resuscitated partly to ensure that the, the safeguards around AUKUS are, are, are Yeah, effective. well, that's, that's obviously a very good thing. I mean, we, we need that expertise, whether we're – I hope we're never remotely tempted to get into the nuclear weapons game, but there's all sorts of other contexts in which – an arms control context yeah. in which that expertise is, is critical. It's been sad to see it eroded over the years. But look, what worries me about AUKUS at the moment is, is what I call a triple whammy. Um, first of all, the eye-watering cost that seems to be now involved, the speculation is, of the order of $200 billion, for which arguably, according to some analyses, we could be buying not eight nuclear-propelled submarines, but 20 or more Collins-type expanded capacity, conventionally propelled boats that might not have the endurance, might not have the longevity on station or you know, capacity to to uh, travel long distances at great speed of the nuclear subs and maybe not have quite the same throw power um, in terms of the uh, you know, the, the missile systems and so on, but would nonetheless be a pretty formidable, um, you know, weapon to have, which would be capable of projecting, you know, quite some distance abroad. That the case for spending it on the nuclear propelled subs, um, given the cost involved, um, seems to be one that really needs to be made much more clearly than it has been so far by either the previous government or the current Labor government. The second thing that worries me very much about is the capability gap. If we do have any kind of prospect of a major kinetic um, you know, outburst in our region in the for the next 20, 20 or more mm. years, uh, you're talking about uh, no obvious capability to handle that with the lifetime of the present boats rapidly coming to a close and a long, long time to wait for the first, even just the first of these boats to come on stream. But the thing that worries me most is the third dimension of it, which is the degree of enmeshment that I fear is inevitably involved with the uh, the purchase of an American boat or even, even a UK boat with American technology, but mainly an, an American boat. I, even though uh, the Defence Secretary and 
and uh, Secretary of State said at the time of the announcement that there was no quid pro quo uh, for this. I find it inconceivable that America won't regard this acquisition by us as simply in addition to American, you know, alliance capability, joint capability. It won't see it as um, as entirely Australia's prerogative as, as what it does with these boats. I won't go into any particular detail about it, but my, my own memory has been mm-hmm. seared in this respect by an experience I had during the 1991 Gulf War when I was foreign minister and uh, Australia was a very willing uh, participant in the in the effort to push back uh, Iraq after its invasion, indefensible invasion of, of Kuwait. We had some naval assets um, deployed in the region and during the course of the conflict, uh, those assets were deployed on American instructions in a way which generated some domestic sensitivities in Australia. I wasn't going to make a fuss about it publicly, but I called Jim Baker by phone and said, Jim, um, you know, I really would have appreciated uh, being consulted. We would have just about this because there are some sensitivities. And I was told in language which I, I won't repeat to basically butt off that uh, this was America's war, not ours, and they were going to run it their way. And we didn't need any help from us uh, in the in, uh, the command and control and management of the uh, of the operation. And I, you know, I, I fear that would be the reality—the notion that we'd be exercising real agency, that we'd be exercising real sovereign independence in the way in which these uh, these boats are utilised—is, um, I think, a little bit of a, a will of the wisp. So that's really what worries me. It's it's not a matter of opposing this outright. It's a matter of saying we really need the Australian public really needs um, a lot fuller explanation of why it is that, um, you know, this seems to be a done deal um, for whoever's in government, uh, the Labor government now, as much as it was the previous one. It's just got too many troubling dimensions and, uh, you know, the opportunity cost issue, the continuity issue, but above all, the sovereignty issue. And uh, we need to be uh, need to be very cautious about, again, that that sort of fear of entrapment that I, that I mentioned. It's one thing to be abandoned. It's another thing to be entrapped. So you're not saying walk away, but you are saying a no, maximum no, I'm not saying clarity. walk away. I'm just saying that, you know, maybe the, maybe there's maybe there's a case uh, that can be made, that will be made, that will be credible about why this is a cost-effective expenditure that will, in fact, be consistent with the maintenance of Australian integrity and sovereign independence. Because um, if you abandon that, it doesn't matter who you're abandoning it to, you've lost really all credibility and self-respect as a nation, and I would hate that to be our fate. I'll move just briefly and briskly now through the last three um, points. Uh, I think the engagement with the rest of our region, the question about credibility as a global citizen, and then, of course, the role of diplomacy. So it might be just useful for you to flesh out each of those points with um, a couple of thoughts on what exactly you mean. So Well, strengthening our relations with Asia and um, And Asian Pacific neighbours, I mean, speaks for itself. I mean, the regional organisations are no longer, I think, the primary vehicle through which we can conduct our diplomacy. In the case of Southeast Asia, the players that really matter are Indonesia, Vietnam, and we've got to work very, very hard 
to build a relationship uh, with them. Um, wider afield, it's Republic of Korea matters as much as these days, almost as, as Japan in Northeast Asia. Uh, and India, of course, is really matters. Now, I think um, both sides of politics in government have got that, and we've been putting a lot of effort into building those relationships. Similarly, in the South Pacific, which is much more obviously a sphere of, of, of global strategic competition than it was even even just very recently. And I think uh, the effort that has to go in of the kind that uh, Penny Wong has been very successfully putting in um, is is exactly right. So it's I'm just making the pretty obvious point. And, and you know, if you're using vehicles like the Quad or an expanded Quad, you know, to harness that um, that that capacity for the major other key players in the region, then um, then I think you're you're on the right track. Look on the um, on the question of good international citizenship. I won't I won't flog this because I, I've written a little book about it all earlier this year. But basically, my view has long been that. Any countries that really want to make a serious contribution to a safer and saner and more just and prosperous world have to focus on more than just the traditional basket or the two baskets of security and economic interest. My argument is that the, every country also has an interest in being and being seen to be a good international citizen. It's not just a moral imperative, but it's a national interest imperative because there are big reputational returns, there are soft power returns, there are reciprocity returns from doing so. And by being a good international citizen, I mean being a very active and generous player when it comes to overseas aid, when it comes to um, effective advocacy for universal human rights, uh, for effective contributions to conflict prevention and atrocity prevention and helping to mop up the the human cost of those catastrophes. And of course, uh, also a significant contribution to big global public goods issues where there might be no immediate return to either security or economic prosperity, but where getting the policies right, whether it's climate or pandemics or whatever, is a, is a huge global imperative. On all those fronts, I think these should be not just Boy Scout optional extras in the conduct of foreign policy. Um, I think they, they should be mainstream, a mainstream commitment. And um, I, I, I cast it in that way, bringing, bringing back our credibility because on too many of these fronts we could go into detail, but I won't. <coughs> We've just lost the plot in terms of playing any kind of significant, generous, creative role. The, the, final, the final point I make is um, <coughs> about challenges is the, um, the need to restore diplomacy to, um, to centre stage. I mean, frankly, over the period of the coalition governments in particular, um, the Foreign Affairs Department has lost its stature, its credibility, its influence in decision-making. The defence uh, establishment and the intelligence uh, community have been the key players. And um, that's fine if this is done in a cooperative, you know, collective way, which was the case during the, the Labor government, of which I was a, a component, worked very cooperatively with the defence and intelligence agencies in a, in a whole of government approach to this stuff. But um, if you if you let your foreign policy be completely securitized, then you lose an awful lot of, uh, of value and uh, an awful lot of credibility internationally. And I think that's that's been our fate in recent times. There's a desperate need to restore the stature, restore the morale, restore the impact of the professional foreign policy policy people in our system. We've got plenty of them, but they need to recover their confidence. And I think it's um, with a strong minister and with the kind of government we have now that I think gets this need for rebalancing, I'm rather more optimistic than I was just a few months ago about that part of the, uh, the challenge spectrum that faces us.
Look, thank you, Gareth. Before we, we wrap up, I'm just going to add a little texture to a couple of those points and maybe just push push you, um, push back on one or two points to, to get your, your sense of, um, of what's possible. On engagement with Asia, uh, I guess my own perspective would be that there's been some really interesting bipartisanship in recent years. You know, the Quad was in fact something that was very much um, developed and, and uh, initiated under conservative governments. And of course, that involved that very heavy and deep relationship with India and Japan with, um, uh, w- yeah. with Asian countries. So I sometimes like to see that as being a continuation, a, a variation of middle power diplomacy rather than um, a counterpoint to it. Um, and then and two other points, and I'm very happy to just take any response to these, on the values question on the good international citizenship. Uh, I guess um, there are values and there are values in foreign policy, um, but we've certainly heard a very strong values mantra in recent years from both sides of politics. And it'd be interesting to understand how you distinguish that from your uh, your view of good international citizenship. Finally, on diplomacy, uh, and I would agree strongly that Australia needs the highest performing diplomatic service and a diplomatic service that is deeply collaborative with all of the other agencies of government security and otherwise. Uh, I think there a challenge that we're dealing with is really empowering um, our officials to be bold with their ideas, to be bold in their engagement across the policy community, and also, I guess, to have a very clear understanding about what diplomacy is is for, because it is a contested strategic environment. Um, you know, I think the securitisation is partly a function of what the world has done to us, in a sense, rather than necessarily a set of political choices. So I just wonder if, if you want to uh, have the last word on any of those any of those points. Well, on, on all three, on the quad, I do agree that there are some things the coalition initiated that are perfectly defensible, perfectly credible and deserve continuity. Another another obvious one was the new Colombo plan, which was a very fine achievement by, by Julie Bishop and uh, one that I applaud. The, the trouble is initiatives of that kind, a commitment of that kind uh, to the region were too few and too far between and few and far between and were... Um, unaccompanied by any kind of serious serious evidence of um, getting it that Australia's future lies with our uh, geography rather than our anglospherical history. And that really troubled me. And I think that's the, the change that we, we need to make. And in fact, back to the future, this is, this is very much the, the, the attitude that we struck uh, back in the, the Hawke-Keating days, and I think we need to strike it again. On the question of values in um, foreign policy, look, it's all very well to talk about um, Australian values or Western values or whatever if you're talking to a domestic audience. But if you're talking to any kind of international audience, that kind of language is dead on arrival. It's very, very counterproductive. People are not people in, in Myanmar and, and um, Xinjiang and anywhere else are not interested in what Australia's values are. They're interested in universal values. And um, universal human rights values stand for themselves. They shriek out as demanding respect and credibility. And any uh, self-respecting good international citizen ought to be actively promoting and talking about universal values, certainly not national values. Um, you know, values are an important part of any foreign policy. That's that's the whole point of me emphasizing the good international citizenship shtick. I mean, rather than just the the hard realist security and economic stuff, there's this third dimension, which is you know value centric, but 
the language is important, and I don't like the language of Australian values. Frankly, I just do think it's counterproductive, and we ought to be avoided. The third point was on diplomacy and securitisation, and I guess, I guess, how do we empower our diplomats to be? very effective operators across the policy community and have a clear world. Well, everything, everything starts with leadership, political leadership from the minister and what is given credibility, what is given respect and what is given attention and what is ignored or derided. And frankly, we've had too many ministers and too many prime ministers in recent memory who just have not given respect and credibility uh, even to the point of, of you know sacking people, uh, Mike Costello was absolutely brilliant uh, head of the foreign. It's a long Fester. time ago now. It's a yeah. very long time ago, but that set the yeah. tone for twelve years of coalition government in which public servants were treated as less than stellar contributors to government policy making. Very, very, very often marginalised, and loyalty tests were imposed, which should not, frankly, be the case when you're talking about professional public service advice. Everything should be contestable, and ministers and governments should be prepared to get unwelcome views. And you know, public service diplomats, like anyone else, have to accept government decisions when they're made. But those decisions should not be made in the first place without hearing all sides and listening and genuinely wrestling with the arguments rather than dismissing them. And there's been far too much of that. So, the, the, you know, it's a confidence problem. It's a morale problem. And it's not, not a professional expertise problem. Australian Foreign Service, it's been hollowed out a bit as a result of these developments over the last you know, 20 years. But there's still a hardcore of real, real capacity there. It just has to be let loose and um, give people the sort of confidence that, you know, frankly, they've, they've had at various times when Australian foreign policy has been very active and very successful on both the regional and the world stage. Um, it's a huge and undervalued resource, um, our foreign policy establishment, and it's time that it's had its head again. So, Gareth, that's been a, a rich, energising, challenging conversation. I'm really grateful that you've made time to come and speak to us today at the National Security College on the National Security Podcast. Thanks very much. My pleasure, Rory. Good to talk to you. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusive Apply. See site for details.